Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Well, if you have your Bible with you, and I'm sure you have, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, please? Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. And we hear God's word together. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbour, For we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. The verses that I want to look at this evening for a few moments are verse 26 and verse 27. What Paul is doing here is he is establishing a general principle for us in verse 17 to verse 24. The principle is that a Christian should be different from the ungodly world. So in Ephesians 4 and verse 17, he says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. And then later on in verse 24, He says that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So we are new creations in Christ. And that means that we should be marked out as different, living different lives and different lifestyles from our neighbours. That doesn't mean that we're to be good living. It doesn't mean that we're to assume an air of moral superiority. We're sinners, saved by grace. We're not better than other people. We're not to look down upon our neighbours or disparage them. It's simply that as a result of God's grace, in thankfulness for what Christ has done for us, and to reflect the new life that we now have, because our guilt has been dealt with by God's grace and mercy, and now we aspire to be like Christ, who is our role model. We must be different from the ungodly world. And that's a general principle. And Paul has stated it 
quite clearly here in these verses. Now having stated that principle, the apostle goes on to give us examples of that. And the first example in verse 25 is very important indeed. It tells us that Christians should not tell lies. A person who claims to be a believer, who loves the Lord and claims to love the Lord, professes to be saved, that person should put away lying, no matter who they are, what position in life they hold. They put away lying and speak every man truth with his neighbour. Man, dear, that's some challenge for Christian politicians, isn't it? Put away lying. Stop telling untruths. After all, um, we are, says Paul here, members one of another. We are part of the church. We belong to Christ. If we belong to Christ, how can we tell lies? When he tells us here that Christ is the, the very essence of truth. Verse 21, you have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. If you know the Lord Jesus, uh, why would you deliberately set out to deceive other people? And then in verse 26, he moves on to another specific application of his general principle. He says, wherefore, he says, and be ye angry and sin not, and let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. So here's principle number two. Not only should Christians tell the truth and stop lying, like, which is a common practice in our evil world, but Christians, I'm looking at the text here, Christians should be angry. Do you see that? Verse 26, be ye angry. Be ye angry. Now, we've got to bear in mind that some Christians will find this difficult because anger is not something that we want to do. It's not something that comes uh, to the Christian as being something that, that, that's, that's God-fearing, God-honoring, God uh, and, and we, we naturally want to shy away from anger. And the psalmist advises us in Psalm 37 and verse 8 that we are to cease from anger and forsake wrath and fret not thyself in any ways to do evil. And yet Paul here tells us that we are to be angry. Now that immediately makes me think that there are some things that we must be angry about. We cannot just be angry. We cannot just be angry at people. Can't go around in a state of anger. But there are some things that we need to be angry about as Christians. There are good, clear reasons for what we might call righteous anger. Let me give you some examples. I think we should be angry with immorality. Should we not? There's no shortage of it in modern society. We see it all the time. Immorality is being thrust in your face, in the screen, on the streets. And you can expect to see more. It's not going to get any better. Now that we have our new Northern Ireland Assembly in place, which everybody seemed to want, according to the news, and the executive is in charge, our very strongly leftist-leaning, socially liberal executive expect to see more trans rights and more gay rights and more abortion rights and moves towards 
the assisted dying of the most vulnerable sections of our population, the elderly and the sick and the mentally infirm, and perhaps even the depressed, as there are parts of the world where even now, if you go to the doctor and say that you're suffering from clinical depression, they will offer you uh, what they think is an easy way out. They will offer to euthanize you that euthanasia. That has happened in, in Canada, hasn't it? What think, right-thinking person wouldn't be angry? Never mind Christians. Christians have a right, in fact, I suggest even a responsibility to be angry with those situations. And there's a particular challenge for our new Minister of Education, a DUP MLA, and a man who's a professing Christian. And this month he will have the the job of introducing and enforcing the new relationship and sexual education provisions in our schools. How's he going to do that? I've been asking about that in social media over the past few days. I have got an answer. The answer is that the law is already in place. By the Westminster government, he will not have to pass that law or put that law into effect. It comes into effect. There's nothing he can do about that, about the law. I suggested that he possibly could bring it to the Assembly as a proposal to have it removed, and that, of course, would be overturned in the Assembly, given the Assembly's left-leaning bias right across the political divide. But how is he going to, as a Christian, how is he going to administer in our schools, enforce that law in our schools? Now, that's something we need to keep an eye on over the next month or two, when teachers are being told to teach classes where abortion is presented as an alternative method of contraception. And it's a DUP minister who's in charge. Are the schools going to have to enforce that? And if any school teacher or school decides they're not going to teach this, will the education authority here then force them to teach it, headed up by a professing Christian minister? We will be watching that. I trust. Christians have a right and a responsibility to be angry with immorality. And with false religion, how can we not be angry when cults and false religions are leading people into a lost eternity? Jesus was angry with corrupt religion. In fact, he tells people who are preaching a false gospel in Matthew 7 and 21 to 23, People who actually are doing what they think are mighty miracles, prophesying in the name of the Lord, casting out devils in the name of the Lord, doing wonderful works in the name of the Lord. And in verse 23, it tells us that on that last day, Jesus will profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I think we should be angry with people who are teaching the false gospel. We should be angry with injustice, proper injustice. William Wilberforce was a Christian believer. He lived from 1759 to 1833. He was angry that men and women 
were being taken into captivity and made to work for for nothing in atrocious conditions in slave colonies, colonies. But he did something about it. He used his influence in Parliament to drive legislation through Parliament to abolish the slave trade. Like William Wilberforce, we should be angry when we encounter injustice and sinful behaviour. We certainly shouldn't tolerate sin, should we? Let alone celebrate it. There are things, I'm sure you could add to that list, I'm just giving you a few examples of things that Christians should be angry about. And yet you might say, well, shouldn't we be following in the steps of Christ? Shouldn't we be trying to improve our temperament? Well, there is a good um, role model for righteous anger in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus. God wrath is right throughout the Bible. God, you see, is angry with unrepentant sinners. I know that sometimes we're often taught in church about the love of God and the mercy of God, but we must remember that God is angry with our sin. It's not anger that flares up the way our anger sometimes flares up. It's not temperamental anger. It's anger. It's righteous anger with sin, and it must always be punished. You often go into churches these days and you will hear evangelical people saying that God hates the sin, but, he's ang- but he loves the sinner. Isn't that right? God hates the sin and he loves the sinner. And that's the message that's being preached in many of our pulpits. Now make of that what you will. God's love was demonstrated for sinners at the cross. If you reject the cross, you reject God's love. Isn't that right? If you tell people that God is angry with sin, but he loves the sinner. And you leave it there. You will lull them into a false sense of security. In fact, the actual truth is that God hates the sin, and he calls upon the sinner to repent. And if that repentance is not present, then the sinner must be punished for that sin. God is angry with unrepentant sinners. In fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10 and 31 that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, for the word of the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. John 3 and 16, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. God is angry, wrathful with unrepentant sinners. Sometimes God is angry with the waywardness of his own people, his own redeemed people. There's an incident in Acts 4 and 14 that you can look up where God demonstrated his anger with Moses, his own chosen man. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. There's many more references. And of course then, we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's sinless son. 
And again and again, we're told about the loving Jesus, the hymn Jesus, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, stereotype. But what about the day when Jesus went into the temple? What about the day when he cleansed the temple in John chapter 2 and verse 13? And of course, we know that he did that on more than one occasion. The Jewish Passover was at hand. Jesus in Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. Gentle Jesus, making mild, clearing the hypocrites and the, and, and the people making money out of religion out of God's house. But that anger was controlled. So how do we reconcile the anger of God with our, because of our sinful and righteous lives, with the love of God who planned our redemption? It's simple and it's profound. And it is that God is slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. It is that he demonstrated his anger for us at Calvary. His wrath, his righteous anger with my sin and yours was poured out upon his sinless son. His mercy extended to us. God's justice satisfied to be like Jesus. We must be angry with what he is angry with. And that way we can exhibit righteous anger. As Paul says here, without sin. Let's go back to our text. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. You see, no sooner has Paul told us that we're to be angry, to be deeply unhappy with the circumstances of this world, that we are to experience a sense of righteous indignation, that he draws a line beyond which we should not cross. And he expresses it in terms of time. Let's pause for a wee moment, catch our breath, because we've covered quite a bit of ground. The day we get married, February 1977, reminds me, anniversary must be coming up sometime soon February 1977 it was snowing it was an awful day it was a bad day got married that day and it was very simple we weren't approved of so I went up to the house on the day of the wedding I picked up the wedding flowers and banger and went up to the house and lifted my future wife in the car two people jumped into the back to be witnesses and we drove down to Castlereagh Registry Office and we signed the register. And we came back. That was it. It wasn't the usual family occasion. We went back to the farmhouse and we sat down. And we did have, we had a nice meal. And shortly afterwards, we changed out of our wedding clothes. And we headed off to Port Rush for our honeymoon in the snow one night, overnight, in a hotel. Fawcett's Royal Portrush Hotel is not there anymore. But before we left, Jeanette's father, the late James Johnson, surprised me with a piece of advice. 
It did surprise me because he hadn't spoken to me for about two years since I asked him, could I marry his daughter? He said to me, he says, I'll give you a word of advice. Never let the sun go down on your wrath. And I thought it was wise and I was thinking about it when I was preparing this. Essentially what Paul is saying here and the advice that he gave me that day is that we must keep our anger, no matter how justified that anger is, we must always keep it under restraints so that in our anger we do not sin. We must be self-controlled. After all, the fruit of the Spirit includes temperance, and that's self-control. And there's a very good reason for this, and it comes from the teaching of Christ himself. And if you still have your Bible, would you turn with me please to Matthew 5? Because this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a very essential part of teaching, of the teaching regarding anger. It's Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. And Jesus says there, teaching the crowd, the Sermon on the Mount, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever shall say thy fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Now notice that this mention of anger without a cause, verse 22, is very much in the context of murder. Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. The same phrase used in verse 22, Whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment, without a cause. Anger is dangerous. Jesus talking about murder, a dreadful sin, the taking away of someone's life. But to prove murder in court, there must be deliberate intent. Murder has to have an intent. An intent begins in the heart. And very often it begins with anger. It begins with bitterness and anger and enmity. The Heidelberg Catechism here insists that God hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, desire for revenge, and God regards all of these as murder. Murder starts in the heart. Murder brings you, uh, anger brings you under the, the condemnation and the judgment of God because it is the root of murder. I heard a news report some years ago and I looked it up. I had taken away note of it and kept it in my computer file on the sermon illustrations uh, section. And this news report was several years ago. It was about a man and a woman going shopping. And they were driving around this very full car park and they were looking for a space. And the woman said, there's one away over there. And the husband said, get you out and walk over and keep that space for me. And I'll drive round. So the woman got out of the car and she went across the car park through the lines of cars and she got herself into the space and she stood in the space in the car park to keep it 
reserve it. So her husband started to drive round. But there was, it was a crowded car park and the traffic wasn't moving that fast. And before he could get round to her, someone else had seen the space. And they came along and they tried to get into the space and the woman stepped out in front and stopped them from getting in. And the driver got out of the car and he said, get out of my way. And she says, no, I'm holding this space for my husband. And there became an incident, developed into an incident. The driver struck the woman in the face and the injury led to her death. Road rage, anger, leading to murder. Even when our anger is justified, even when it's deserved, even when it reflects the righteous anger of God with sin, we must never allow anger to consume us until it becomes a sinful act. We must restrain our anger and keep it under control and never let the sun go down upon your wrath. And then in verse uh, 27, I think, yeah, let me go back to the text. In verse 27, Paul tells us why. Because there's a terrible danger in unrestrained anger. He writes, never give place to the devil. What happens when we don't keep our anger under control? Paul warns that unrestrained anger is always an opportunity for the devil to get a place. Now that's an interesting wee word study. And if you give me two or three extra minutes, I'll explain it to you. The word place here in this verse, verse 27, look at it. Neither give place to the devil. The Greek word is topos. And the authorised version has the actual correct literal translation. The devil's place, the AV, is a literal translation of the text by and large. Um, That's about allowing anger to go unrestrained and uncontrolled and to, to fester away in our lives and to provide a place, to provide a room in our heart for the devil to get into our heart. It is literally, in this sense, a dwelling place for Satan, if we take it as meeting place. But the question then arises for, for believers, can Satan dwell in a heart that has been possessed by Christ? A heart wherein the Holy Spirit is dwelling. I know that some charismatics will have no problem with that. They will believe that Christians can be, for example, possessed by the devil or possessed by demons. But can they? Now, there's another possibility here. The word topos can simply be translated and is sometimes translated as the word opportunity. So here it is. Do not give the devil an opportunity to lead you into sin. For example, by holding a grudge or nurturing anger or harboring resentment or cultivating bitterness, an equally valid translation. The devil has no place in the life of a believer. So don't give him the opportunity to pressurize you or to place temptation in your way by allowing your anger to fester away in your heart. A Christian should never hold a grudge. The second word 
in our wee word study then in verse 27 is the word devil. The word there is diabolos. And some commentators will point out that the word itself doesn't have to always apply to Satan. They will talk about how, in some cases, the word in the New Testament, that same word is used as someone who is a slanderer, somebody who spreads gossip, someone who's particularly harmful, someone who is a false gossiper about somebody else, and they will say, well, you can give place in your heart to a lot of slander, and that will bring you down and bring you into the devil's snare. Now, there is no doubt that a slanderer is doing the devil's work, and some people, perhaps even Christian believers, can be busy doing the devil's work, going around gossiping, slandering others. We've got good instructions in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19 and 16 says, Thou shalt not go up and down as a tailbearer among thy people. Proverbs 26 and 20 tells us where no wood is, there the fire goeth out. So where there is no tailbearer, the strife ceaseth. How many churches have been destroyed by gossip? by people slandering each other behind backs. I, I don't accept that as the being the exact translation. It is used, actually, in 1 Timothy 3 and 11, uh, where it says, Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers. That's the very word that we're talking about. But I think the fact here that the definite article is used in the Greek, it is, ho diabolos, the devil. It is the devil, and I think that refers to Satan. So I'm inclined to think that the exact meaning that Paul is telling us here is that we're not to let your indignation get such a grip on your life, to keep your anger in check with the Holy Spirit, whose fruit will be growing and developing and progressing in the believer's life, and to remember not to let your anger linger on that so long that it destroys you and allows Satan to get an opportunity to place some temptation in your way that you would act rashly and so dishonor the Lord. Right, that's me. What have we learned? We've learned that it is certainly proper at times to be angry. In fact, Christians are to be angry with certain things, at the right things, or rather, should I say, at things that are wrong. For God is angry with sin, and so should we be. But that anger should be kept under control, like the anger of Christ in the temple. That's righteous anger that is short-lived. It should never be allowed to dominate our lives. Our anger should never grip our emotions so that we are angry people all the time. We must not allow the devil to get an opportunity that he seeks to take some form of control of our lives and lead us into temptation and perhaps into sin. James 1 and 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath.
Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.